Welcome to your El Monitor podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Kepel. Today, we are recording from the Institut du Monde Arabe uh, in Paris, from its uh, famous rooftop with a view on the Seine. And my guest is His Royal Highness Prince Turki Al Faisal Al Saud, Chairman of the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, and also former head of the General Intelligence Directorate of Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The GID was responsible for the Kingdom's dealings with Afghanistan, an issue that caught most of your attention, Your Royal Highness, during the 24 years that you were in office. Those years that changed the Middle East and the world are the topic of your recently published book, The Afghanistan File, co-authored with Michael Field. It is a fascinating first-hand memoir of a watershed period. Sahib al-Sumul Maliki, al-Amir Turki al-Faisal, ahlan wa welcome, bienvenue, to Reading the Middle East. Thank you very much. Your, your book was published at a timely moment, right after the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and while the U.S. was pulling out for good from Afghanistan after two decades, and delivering it back to the Taliban, a decision that, whichever its purpose, brought havoc anew to that country in a return to square one of its endless ordeal. You mentioned in the first pages of your book that the idea from it originally came from the late King Abdullah, then Crown Prince, who had noted that everybody else, I quote, had written his account of the Afghan Jihad and that everybody else then had blamed Saudi Arabia for much of what went wrong, end quote. As the late king had been crown prince for a quarter century from 1982 to 2005, could you remind us when he told you to write your Afghan memoirs and actually how long it took for you to complete this book. Thank you very much, Jill, and very gracious of you to, uh, to talk to me about the account and uh, the Afghanistan file. Uh, the late King Abdullah broached the subject with me when I was appointed as ambassador to the United Kingdom. And but the, the, the original, uh, 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 the original uh, appointment was in 2002, but it took some time for the British government to decide to accept me as ambassador. And that was when uh, the king decided that, uh, uh, as was said, said in the book, to, to tell our story when everybody else had already uh, told the story. And as I said, put much of the blame on Saudi Arabia for what was happening. And that was when, uh, with the support and the coordination of, of government uh, departments in the kingdom, um, I began the, uh, the, the writing of the book with the help of Michael Field when I was ambassador in London. And I used to, to talk with Michael and tell him about my story. And he would uh, uh, do the, the legwork, as it were, of uh, going to, uh, to, to people, interviewing them and looking up uh, files from different countries. Uh, he made the tour of, of all the, the countries that were involved in that, beginning with Saudi Arabia, of course, Pakistan, uh, Russia, the United States, Iran even, 
uh, etc., and uh, including, uh, I must say, France as well, and uh, the UK and uh, and Egypt. Uh, and so this is how the, the, the story began. What were the thoughts of the author of the Afghanistan file on the day of the American pullout in August 2021? Before I tell you that, uh, I, would, I would say that I finished writing the book actually in 2007. And uh, it lay on my, on my desktop um, until 2018. Um, not for any reason, uh, except that for some uh, unknown um, reluctance on, on my part, um, I did not publish it uh, uh, and think about publishing until 2018. And what led me to that date was that uh, 2019 was coming along, which was the 40th anniversary of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So uh, I began to research whether uh, Michael was still around and uh, sure enough uh, connected with him. And we got together and started uh, revising the book because of course it had become a bit outdated by then. And uh, uh, we presented it to publishers uh, in 2019, around the middle or the end of that year. Uh, unfortunately, uh, more than 20 publishers at that time did not think that it was worth publishing, uh, so except one, which was the one that, that, that finally did publish the book. And with all of the preparations and getting all of the composition of the book and so on, uh, by 2021, it was uh, in the presses and ready to come out uh, when the American withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, took place. And I assure you, Yanni, there was uh, absolutely no, no, uh, no interference from my part uh, to make that happen in order to give my book relevance. Uh, it was purely coincidental that uh, it came out actually in September, I think, if I'm not uh, mistaken, which was the month that the Americans began to pull out uh, from uh, from Afghanistan. And then as to the thoughts, uh, the uh, mixed thoughts actually, uh, um, history repeating itself kept recurring in my mind as I saw how the Americans were, were pulling out. Um, deja vu, definitely. Uh, and uh, But also uh, with, with, with differences. Uh, when the Soviets withdrew, it was a much more orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan. And uh, they did uh, uh, claim or, or try to claim that uh, mission accomplished, as it were, as they were crossing the river into Uzbekistan uh, from Afghanistan on their tanks and, uh, and other uh, armored vehicles. And, uh, but uh, with the Americans, unfortunately, uh, it didn't occur that way. It was a, a messier uh, enterprise uh, with more shades of, of uh, withdrawal from Saigon back in 1975 than uh, the Russian withdrawal in uh, 1989. Um, and uh, basically, uh, here we go again. Yani, that, that kept recurring in my mind. And I remember in 1989, when the Soviets withdrew, the the world turned its back on Afghanistan basically for a period at least at least uh, until 2001 
uh, and uh, by uh, th this uh, past year, when the Americans withdrew, my first thought was that I hope that the world does not turn its back again on Afghanistan, because we saw what happened when the world turned its back uh, on Afghanistan. And uh, that is why uh, my main concern now is not just that the world continues to pay attention to Afghanistan, but that the suffering of the Afghan people, hopefully, uh, would be brought to an end. And the, the story there is yet to be told. We're going to rewind now and go back to uh, stage one, i.e. Uh, when uh, the Soviet invasion took place and uh, the way you, you reacted. In the, the first chapters of the Afghanistan file, you deal with the way the general intelligence department under your authority, together with the CIA and the Pakistan, Pakistani ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence, coordinated in order to help the rival Mujahideen groups organize resistance against the communist government in Kabul and its Soviet backers after the Christmas Day 1979 invasion. You make no secrets in your book of the very limitations of the three intelligence agencies when they wanted to keep those groups focused on that aim and of their endless internecine fights or their unreliability as a whole. You also noticed very early on, as of the early 1980s, that a number of unlicensed so-called charities with a radical agenda, many of them from oil-rich Arabian Gulf states, were pumping enormous amounts of money into the Mujahideen organizations, particularly those of Hakmatyar and Sayyaf, who would sooner or later breed a number of Arab and other foreign fighters eager to bite the hands that had fed them, including those of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. With hindsight, what do you think went wrong and when? And would you say, as of today in January uh, 2022, after the last uh, American pullout that we just discussed, that it was worth it, all the more so in retrospect, now that the Taliban are back in Afghanistan with a vengeance. When I was dealing with Afghanistan, there were two uh, distinct uh, periods with almost uh, a demarcation line between them uh, that occurred uh, between uh, 1979 and 2001 when I left the GID. The first 10 years, which was the fight against the presence of the Soviet troops in Afghanistan, I would call that the good war. That's when the, the kingdom, in spite of all of the difficulties facing not just us, but also our friends in Pakistan, and a main concern of our support for, for Pakistan was that the Soviets would not roll into uh, Pakistan from Afghanistan in order to reach the historical aim of, of Russian uh, imperialism, if you like, from, from imperial times, uh, getting to the warm waters of the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. And uh, that is what made the, the kingdom's contribution to, to, Pak to Pakistani efforts to uh, occupy Soviet troops uh, in Afghanistan and not allow them 
to roll over into Pakistan. And hence, certain measures were taken uh, to do that. All the supplies that were uh, poured into the hands of the Mujahideen were strictly monitored to make sure that they were all of Soviet or Soviet ally origin, whether from the Eastern Bloc or eventually China came along and provided some of that support in order not to give uh, 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 the Russians the excuse uh, to, to invade uh, Pakistan. And our American friends were, were very, very helpful in that because they had the organization and the wherewithal to be able to do that. And we coordinated also with our Egyptian friends who also had uh, weaponry that had originally been sold to them or, or manufactured by uh, Soviet or East European uh, factories. Uh, so that was one aim, which was to keep Pakistan uh, viable and alive and not allow uh, the Russians to invade it. Uh, the second aim, of course, as I said, was to keep the Russians inside Afghanistan. And uh, it was the most uh, difficult process of coordinating the, the basic seven Mujahideen groups that came out of Pakistan uh, to fight the Russians in Afghanistan with all of their differences, whether tribal, um, sectarian, uh, or who supported them from outside, et cetera, et cetera. And that took a lot of the time and effort, not just of myself, but also the Pakistanis as the host country and our American friends to convince the American Congress to continue giving uh, the money to buy the weapons and so on and support for the Mujahideen. And as I describe in my book, and he, uh, it was almost uh, the most uh, enervating um, experience that I've ever had to deal with in getting those the leaders of those seven groups uh, to to uh, to agree that they would work together all the time and not just for one one period or for one target or etc. The effort itself, uh, when it started, uh, was. Um, did not begin to succeed until much later. And I would give it from 1979 until about um, 1985, 86, when it began to, to appear that actually the Soviets were really suffering and, and are seeking uh, to get out, especially when Mr. Gorbachev uh, took over in, uh, in the Soviet Union and started his glasnost and perestroika. All of these efforts, of course, and led in the final analysis, as I mentioned, to the Soviets uh, wanting to withdraw from Afghanistan. And they approached us in Saudi Arabia uh, to arrange for uh, uh, a party with, uh, with the Mujahideen uh, in order to make sure that uh, when they leave, uh, they leave as it were uh, with, uh, with honor. And uh, a meeting was set up in the city of Taif. GID uh, arranged for that of course, with the help of the Pakistanis who provided interpreters and other support as well. And it was then, of course, that the, finally the Soviets reached uh, an agreement with the Mujahideen for a timetable of withdrawal uh, and to do it uh, in an orderly manner. Um, that, that's what I would call the good war. Um, the bad war started as soon as the Soviets uh, left Afghanistan, which was the infighting between the Mujahideen. It was then that all of those things that I mentioned about 
differences of, of, of sect and, and uh, ethnicity between the Mujahideen themselves uh, began to, to, uh, to, to affect the conduct of, of the Mujahideen leaders. And that's when uh, even in, in our part of the world, um, there, there appeared the, the schism between those who had agendas in, uh, in Afghanistan uh, to promote one or, or, or the other. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Let's go back to what you call the, the end of the good war, uh, which is... Uh, uh, February 15, 1989, the Soviet pullouts, which we know from your book is also a very important date because it was your 44th birthday. So you had all reasons to be, to be pleased. And I assure you, I had nothing to do with, with arranging that to coincide with my birthday. We'll, we'll leave that to divine <laughs> providence. We do not interfere. Uh, but, you know, um, I was 34 at the time, not exactly, it was not my birthday. So I you know, had some exposure already to the Arab world and to political Islamism. And you know, most people in the world did not pay attention, including myself, to what happened on the 15th of February. Why? Because of what happened the day before. When I asked my students, they don't know, they say, sir, it was Valentine's Day. Right, it was Valentine's Day, but it was first and foremost Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And at the world level, it beclouded, it hid, if we may say so, the Sunni Mujahideen's victory in what you call the Good War, i.e. expelling an atheist invader for the, the Afghan abode of Islam or the, the Dar al-Islam. And instead, uh, Khomeini was, in my view, but you may disagree, of course, the one who won the media war in the Muslim world at the time, as he purportedly postured as the hero rushing to the rescue of the Prophet Muhammad against blasphemy in the West, something which would also have far-reaching consequences to that day. But I noticed that in your book, you did not mention at all this incident, the coincidence of the uh, Rajdi Fatwa uh, and the Soviet pullout. Was it because to you, it was not relevant that, you know, the war uh, against the Soviet Union was also a war in defense of Muslims by uh, Saudi Arabia and the Sunni bloc, who was at the time also challenged by uh, the uh, Iranians and by Khomeini for the sort of hegemony on the Muslim world? Or is it that you were 
altogether so much concerned, which is understandable, with the Afghan issue per se? There was no issue for us in terms of Sunnah and Shia. Uh, one of the groups uh, supported by the by the Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and the United States was a Shia group based in in in, uh, in Pakistan, which also contributed to the to the fighting against the Soviet uh, forces at that time. There was absolutely no uh, inclination at the time of considering this as, as a sectarian Sunni uh, um, fight or jihad to protect the, the Muslim Ummah, uh, but rather as, as, uh, as uh, a, a justified um, uh, opposition to, to uh, an imperial uh, design by the Soviets to take over a country and try to change it which they tried to do very, very thoroughly into a communist and an apostate state uh, from Muslim uh, to, to communist was something that was repugnant to not just to, to us in Saudi Arabia, but to the Muslim Ummah, hence the contributions from worldwide to support the, uh, the Mujahideen. The fact that Khomeini uh, began to pretend to be the defender of uh, of Muslims, that was that was his uh, his agenda, uh, and using the fatwa against uh, Salman Rushdie, obviously uh, he succeeded in in uh, appearing to be the one who is concerned with the defense of of, of Muslim rights and so on. Uh, and if you look at how Iran has dealt with Muslim issues uh, since then. That's been their aim: is to is, is to score propaganda points, uh, particularly uh, in 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 the face of of Saudi Arabia's uh, being the host of the two holy cities in Mecca and Medina, where Muslims from all over the world gather every year for the pilgrimage, and giving the Saudi Arabia the prestige and the the, the position. Uh, to be the, the, the host of those millions of, of Muslims that come there. Uh, Khomeini didn't hide his intent as far as the kingdom is concerned. If you look at his statements from day one, he pretty much uh, um, tried to denigrate uh, Saudi Arabia as an apostate state, as an interloper, as an occupier of Muslims, and as a servant of, of non-Muslim intentions, particularly the Americans, etc. And uh, that, he, he, quoting him, he would say, uh, Mecca and Medina must be liberated from the oppression of the Al Saud family and so on. So that was um, a public statement on the part of Afghanistan that unfortunately continues to this day. If you look at Khamenei's statements about the kingdom, it equally echoes uh, what, what Khomeini said. But we did not think at the time in 1989 that we were in a propaganda war. But the media, I must say, in the West, uh, preferred to promote Khomeini's uh, fatwa rather than the organization of Islamic conference uh, because they had, a, they seemed to have uh, a love affair with, with Khomeini's so-called charisma as uh, the one who came back from Paris and to, took on this uh, very strong militarily uh, uh, powerful uh, Shah of Iran and and brought him down. So that also was part of, of the of the media 
that promoted, if you like, uh, Khomeini. I would admit to you even today that uh, Saudi Arabia uh, not only did not engage in, but that the Iranians were much better at uh, than we were. As you mentioned earlier on, you left office in August 2001, a few weeks later, 9-11 occurred. Over the 1990s, and here I quote you, I found my time increasingly occupied by the problem of Osama bin Laden. You had met informally with him a few times in Pakistan, where he looked like, and I quote you there, a calm, gentle young man, end quote. In early 1990, you received him in your office in Jeddah, where he asked you for the support of the Saudi government to help his, so he said, Yemeni Mujahideen who were back from Afghanistan to topple the Soviet-backed South Yemeni government of the time. His family actually came from the Hadramaut or region of Southern Yemen itself. You turned him down and I quote, mentioned he had become haughty and arrogant and very much a man with a mission. Then, after the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein's troop on August the 2nd, 1990, Bin Laden was received by Prince Sultan Bin Abdelaziz and the Minister of Defense. He told him not to call the US military in Saudi, into Saudi Arabia, based on the famous hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, expel Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula, and he suggested instead that his Mujahideen do the job. Of course, he was turned down and then fled to the Sudan and the whole Al-Qaeda saga started. King Fahd called the US and allied troops to the rescue on August 7, and eight years later to the day, Al-Qaeda would commemorate that decision with the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, the beginning of the process which would lead quickly to 9-11. So based on that, I would like to ask you two questions. How come the two most senior defense and security executives of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Prince Sultan and yourself, would grant bin Laden an official appointment in 1990 even if it were to turn him down politely, as you underline. Was he considered a veteran of the good war, part of the legacy of the success of the Afghan Jihad, or was his family so respected, regardless of himself and his extreme views? Both things you mentioned were correct. He, during the, the, the good war, Bin Laden used to collect humanitarian support for the, for the Afghan refugees uh, in Quetta and Peshawar. And he formed uh, an organization in, in, uh, in Peshawar that would receive um, uh, Arab volunteers who came to do humanitarian work and even some of them who had other agendas. Uh, so Bin Laden uh, at, in 1989, 1990, was considered to be an upright and a courageous uh, individual for having devoted his time to help the Afghans in their struggle against the Soviet Union. 
Uh, and so that is why, uh, but he also, as you said rightly, he came from a prominent family that had been very uh, um, active in, in building up not only Saudi Arabia in terms of construction and so, and so on, but specifically the two holy sites in, in, in Mecca and Medina. Uh, the mosque in Mecca and the mosque in Medina uh, had been uh, constructed uh, by, by the Biladin company uh, in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. Uh, so on those, both those, uh, those uh, considerations, I met him. And of course, as I mentioned in my book, I had met him before in my trips to Islamabad or Peshawar, where as I described him when I met him then, he was a very gentle and very soft-spoken um, um, giant of a man. He, he was over uh, two meters tall, uh, and, uh, but he had a good record, if you like. Uh, that is why uh, both uh, Prince Sultan and I met with Bin Laden to hear from him and to see if he had any sense to make. And, but unfortunately, uh, when he was turned down by me and then by, by Prince Sultan, that's when I think he developed his animosity uh, to the kingdom and began to operate against the kingdom. And uh, the, the, when you say that the, 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 the Al-Qaeda group began its campaign in, in 1998 against the American embassies, uh, I would just repeat what I told you before, that their campaign began a few years before in Saudi Arabia uh, against Saudi targets. Um, which also culminated in 2003 in, in the outbreak of a much bigger uh, terrorist activity by Al-Qaeda against Saudi citizens and Saudi uh, installations. Then one last uh, sort of topical question. Uh, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, you, you left office in August uh, 2001. So you, was, you were still uh, head of the uh, GID in 1998 when the um, embassies were blown up, the American embassies were blown up by Al-Qaeda in Tanzania and Kenya, and also on October 12, 2000, when the US ship Cole was uh, attacked by an Al-Qaeda dinghy as it was uh, refueling in Aden Harbor. How, what did you make of it. What was your take? Do, did you believe, you mentioned, of course, the, the bombings in, in uh, Riyadh in 1995. Did you think, did you see in that an escalation that had reached incredible levels? Did you foresee what would happen a few weeks after uh, you had uh, left office? Did you uh, make any warnings uh, to uh, your colleagues and authorities? And, what was your what you what did you have in mind as you left and while you saw all those things, which in retrospect, of course, would be understood as uh, uh, as terrible warning signs. But when at the time, what was your mind? Could you tell us that? In 1997, before the embassy bombings, um, the late Prince Sultan, who was Minister of Defense, um, made uh, a trip to the United States when he met with uh, President Clinton and the other uh, administration officials, including uh, the head of the CIA at the time. Um, uh, and uh, they, uh, he proposed that uh, a joint committee between the intelligence services in both countries 
not just the intelligence services, but all the security services in both countries should be set up to um, uh, review whatever information on terrorist activity around the globe, not just in the two countries. He and the Saudi government as victims of Bin Laden's terrorism in from 1995, um, saw that there is a need for this coordination with our most important ally at the time uh, on these issues, which was the United States. And sure enough, that committee was set up and it was it would meet in the in the in the headquarters of the GID in Riyadh and be composed, as I said, of all of the security forces, not just GID and CIA, but FBI, military intelligence, uh, Mabahith in Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera, to review whatever information uh, was being gathered on not just the Al-Qaeda, but you know, at the time there were a whole sorts of budding uh, terrorist groups uh, around the world. And if there were, there were um, terrorist acts that had taken place in, in Paris, there were terrorist acts that had taken place in, in various places uh, of the world. Uh, and it was the, the writ of that committee to review all of these information and try to coordinate to forestall, if possible, any future terrorist acts. Unfortunately, we did not succeed at the time uh, to, to forestall, for example, the embassy bombing uh, that, uh, that uh, took place uh, in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. But we were able, with our American friends, to, to uh, identify who exactly did those, uh, those acts, which was Al-Qaeda. And this was also in coordination with our Pakistani friends, because uh, one of the people who had done the deed, if you like, uh, was going back to Afghanistan through, through Pakistan, and he was arrested in Pakistan and actually confessed that Bin Laden was the one who organized the embassy bombings, uh, which led uh, President Clinton to ask of Mullah Omar at the time uh, to hand over Bin Laden to him for trial, which Mullah Omar unfortunately declined, and um, President Clinton unleashes the tomahawks against targets in, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, but also against the chemical factory that was thought to have uh, Bil, well, some of Bin Laden's money in it uh, in Khartoum in, in the Sudan. That committee continued to work until I left office uh, and share information, but there was absolutely nothing in whatever was shared that could pinpoint that, for example, September 11th was going to be the day that it was going to be. Um, and that is where I think it was not just a failure of, of that committee, but I think it was a worldwide failure. Because I remember at the time, our American friends, our British friends, our French friends, our Egyptian friends, we were all uh, sharing information that something is going to happen. But we couldn't identify what exactly it was. And unfortunately, it turned out to be the attack on the Twin Towers in, uh, in New York. And uh, before you sign me off, uh, Jill, um, uh, I'd just like to say one thing about some of the conclusions I reached in the book, which was that the efforts of the Soviet Union to turn Afghanistan into a communist country failed because that was inimical to the Afghan people. It was not coming from them. 
It was being imposed. Uh, they went to the extent of, of, of recruiting children from Afghanistan from the ages of six until the age of 14 and took them to the Soviet Union to indoctrinate them uh, to, and to return them as ideal communists uh, to turn Afghanistan into a communist country. And it didn't happen. The Americans as well, with their allies, particularly NATO allies, tried to turn Afghanistan into a Western type, so-called democratic uh, institutional uh, republic uh, with elections and, and so on. Uh, but that also failed because it didn't come out of the Afghan people themselves. And it was viewed as an imposition from outsiders uh, to, to turn Afghanistan into something that the Afghan people were not. Uh, hence, this failure as well. And uh, this is one point that the, that the Taliban capitalized on when they were fighting against the, the Americans and the NATO forces in, in, in Afghanistan, is that these are invaders from outside and they're trying to turn us into themselves. And that is why when finally the Taliban took over in, in, in Afghanistan uh, a few months back, they were not just the Taliban that I knew when it was in the 1990s and so on, a small uh, part of the, of the uh, composition of, of Afghan society, but they'd actually managed to recruit into them their, their effort, uh, the, the other ethnicities and, and sects uh, in Afghanistan, um, whether Shia, Sunnah, uh, Diobandi, uh, whatever you want to call it, Sufi, etc., but also Uzbek, Tajik, uh, Pashtun, even Hazara, or composed mostly of Shia uh, composition. So this is a lesson I think that we have to carry on forward, that reform and development has to come from inside. It cannot be imposed from outside. Thank you very much, Sahib Sumu, for this uh, illuminating conversation. I wish you the success for, you. Your, for your book and uh, looking forward to seeing you in person whether it be in the kingdom or in the republic. If you have not done so already, please sign up for Reading the Middle East and it monitors other podcasts on the Middle East with Andrew Parasiliti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Kaspit on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>